Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to city council. Next week, we're going to be doing our inaugural Down Ballot Mailback. So please send us your questions about Down Ballot elections or any races you'd like to hear us discuss by email at thedownballot at dailycoast.com or via Twitter by tweeting at DK Elections. And just as a reminder, please subscribe to The Down Ballot wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. But let's go ahead and get to the meat of today's episode. What are we going to be covering on today's show? We're going to start out with a truly outrageous ruling by the Supreme Court that struck down Wisconsin's redistricting plans. We're also going to discuss, on a much funnier note, Donald Trump yanking his quote-unquote complete and total endorsement from the guy who was his supposed favorite Senate candidate in Alabama. Also on tap is a special election that will be coming up for the top prosecutor position in America's fourth largest county. And we'll finish up with a couple of quick hits in two Commonwealth countries, one election in Australia and an interesting development in the governance of our neighbor to the north. Then coming up in the second half of the show, we will be talking with Jessica Post, who is president of the DLCC, the arm of the Democratic Party that helps candidates win elections for state legislative office around the country. Great. Let's get started. This week, we'll be starting off with Wisconsin, where a recent Supreme Court decision has affected the state legislative lines. Near what's going on in Wisconsin? Well, Beard, I am hot about this one. This decision from the U.S. Supreme Court came down today, and I felt sick and furious reading it. The Supreme Court struck down new legislative maps that the Wisconsin Supreme Court picked earlier this month because the Democratic governor, Tony Evers, and the Republican legislature in Wisconsin couldn't agree on maps. Evers vetoed the GOP maps, so redistricting fell to the state Supreme Court, and they wound up choosing maps that Evers himself submitted. What the Supreme Court struck down today were the state legislative maps, specifically the map for the state assembly, because the Evers map that the Wisconsin Supreme Court picked increased the number of black majority districts in the Milwaukee area from six to seven. What's so infuriating about what the Supreme Court did is not just the what, but also the why and the when. In terms of the why, what the far-right majority on the Supreme Court is trying to do is undermine the Voting Rights Act, specifically a requirement that you can't simply cut up populations of minorities and try to dilute their voting strength, that if you can draw a district where, in this case, Black voters have the ability to elect their candidate of choice, then you're obligated to do so. And that is what the Wisconsin Supreme Court thought. But what the U.S. Supreme Court said was, no, you're wrong about all of that. And you're wrong in such a way that 
basically makes it extremely difficult to prevail on future Voting Rights Act claims under this provision of the law. So they did this on their so-called shadow docket, meaning there was minimal briefing, no oral argument, essentially the equivalent of doing something in the dark of night by the Supreme Court, all in the service of basically undermining the VRA. But the really galling thing is the timing of it all. In February, the Supreme Court stayed a ruling by a lower court that said that Alabama had to draw a second congressional district where black voters could elect their candidate of choice. And in that decision, staying that ruling, Brett Kavanaugh wrote this concurring opinion saying it was simply too close to the election for a court to interfere and tell a state that it had to change the maps that it was currently using. And I want to point out that at the time the court ruled in the Alabama case, it was four months away from the primary. But today, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that, yeah, hell yeah, we can totally interfere in the way that a state conducts its elections, even though it's only five months to the primary in Wisconsin. So are you kidding me? Four months versus five months? There's some deep constitutional principle here that says that you can get involved when it's five months away, but you can't get involved if it's four months away. That is complete and utter bullshit, if I might say so. And the situation is really appalling. Like I said, the implications are big because the Voting Rights Act is going to be neutered by the Supreme Court and they're going to do it however they possibly can. And they just don't care about looking like hypocrites. And I think you're totally right there, Nir, where the real fear is what comes next? And there's a real sense that almost anything, almost any conservative argument that some conservative lawyer comes up with could be accepted by this court. And that makes everything around, you know, elections, districts, all of this really, really difficult and kind of scary. So I'm going to take us now down to the deep south, all the way the opposite from Wisconsin down to Alabama, where Donald Trump announced that he was withdrawing his endorsement of Representative Mo Brooks ahead of the May Republican Senate primary to succeed retiring Senator Richard Shelby. So there are two other remaining candidates in the GOP primary that Trump might end up backing. One is Army veteran Mike Durant, who Trump has previously not been crazy about because he was a surrogate for John McCain way back in the day. And then Richard Shelby's choice, former Business Council of Alabama head Katie Boyd Britt. Trump argued that he was abandoning Brooks because the congressman had told an August rally that basically they needed to move past the 2020 election, where even if there was all this voter fraud and election theft that you know Trump and all of the others are so insistent on, that the rally goers really needed to move past it. So that is what Trump has sort of laid his claim on. But instead, it's pretty clear to everyone who's followed Trump that he dumped Brooks because Brooks was losing and Trump doesn't like losers. It's very straightforward. We've seen this before. Trump doesn't like backing losers, so he will much rather dump them rather than stick it out with them. And so in response to this, the congressman himself responded with a statement, basically admitting that Trump had asked him to rescind the 2020 elections, to remove Joe Biden from the White House, to put Trump back in the White House, and hold a new special election for the presidency, all of which, of course, is insane. And 
Brooks sort of says, like, that's not something that could ever happen. And then he also claims that, like, Trump has been influenced by Mitch McConnell, which also doesn't make any sense because Trump and Mitch McConnell are not friends, even if obviously they've worked together to do some terrible things. They are not two people who really work together well. That was all just a very strange situation that occurred. But I take two sort of observations from it. One, Trump remains a powerful force in GOP politics, for sure, but not an all-powerful one. And his own reluctance and even fear to go out on a limb for somebody shows you that you can run in a GOP primary against a Trump-endorsed candidate, and you can still find success, either by, as we've seen in Georgia, where the incumbent governor, Brian Kemp, is running a strong campaign against Trump-endorsed primary opponent, former Senator David Perdue, just going right at them, or by sort of going around and reaching out to Trump's fear of losing. And if you can show that you're doing better than whoever he endorsed, there's a good chance he'll just switch over to your side. So it's a very strange situation over in GOP primary world, which is not the first time that's been the case, but something definitely we want to keep an eye on. And for Mo Brooks, I would just observe that it's not terribly impressive to come out after Donald Trump withdrew his endorsement of you and accuse Trump of doing these things to overturn the election. Mo Brooks was clearly fine with all of this. He was happy to take Trump's endorsement. He was happy to listen to Trump tell him to do all these things right up until Trump dumped him. And then he comes out and admits all of this and says that there's all these problems with Trump. And it's just so clearly like not something he seriously cares about. So at the very least, there's a very good chance we won't have to hear about Mo Brooks any longer very soon. You know, maybe the funniest part of that whole thing, Beard, is that Trump, in pulling his endorsement, said that Brooks had gone, quote unquote, woke. The idea that one of the ringleaders of the Jad Six Stop the Steel rally that preceded the attack on the Capitol could possibly be part of the quote unquote woke world is completely hilarious. But I think you're right. I think this is probably the last we're going to see of Brooks. We just saw a poll the other day that had him coming in third in the GOP primary, meaning he wouldn't even make a runoff. So I think it's going to be bye bye Brooks. Shifting gears, I want to talk about a story that definitely has not gotten very much attention but ought to. In Maricopa County, Arizona, which is home of Phoenix and also the fourth largest county in the entire country, their top prosecutor, Republican Alistair Adele, just resigned under very sorry circumstances. Adele was appointed to fill a vacancy in 2019 and then won a full four-year term the following year by just 51-49 margin. But her term in office went very, very poorly. Last month, the Arizona Republic reported that Adele who had recently been in rehab for alcoholism, had missed many meetings that she was supposed to attend and failed to weigh in on major legal issues that concerned her office, including, you may recall, that recent bogus attempt by Republicans to quote-unquote audit the vote in Maricopa County that a lot of people refer to as a fraud it. She also allegedly called a staffer, quote-unquote, after hours while she was drunk and was slurring her words. This was, in fact, reported to the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors, the body that will be responsible for picking Adele's replacement. But worst of all, 
her office during her tenure had to drop 180 cases, 180 cases because her staff had waited too long to bring any charges. In other words, the statute of limitations ran out. And these weren't minor cases. Uh, A number of them included domestic violence charges. So people accused of domestic violence simply got off a hook due to total incompetence and mismanagement by Alistair Adele. What's going to happen now, as I mentioned, the Board of Supervisors will pick a replacement. That replacement also has to be a Republican, but we're going to have a special election this November for the final two years of Adele's term. There'll be an election for the full four-year term in 2024. Democrat Julie Gunnigal is running again. She's the one who held Adele to that two-point win back in 2020. In that race, a key plank for Gunnigal was the county's very harsh charging and incarceration practices. Maricopa County has an incarceration rate well above the national average. So this creates a new and earlier opportunity for Democrats to try to win back one of the most important local prosecutor's offices in the country this fall. And we all certainly hope that Adele gets the help that she needs, but obviously that's not a person in position to hold an elected office like district attorney. So lastly, I want to take us quickly to a couple of international quick hits, one down in Australia and one up in Canada. So down in Australia, the Labour Party, the center-left party in the country, won the South Australia state election in a pretty convincing victory and now controls all but two Australian states and territories. This is a really good sign for the Labour Party going into the next general election. And that next general election is happening very soon. It's expected to take place sometime in May of this year. Now, unlike our elections that are scheduled, of course, for every November, the parliament will set the exact date of the election among a number of restrictions. So we don't know the exact date of the election yet, but we do expect it to be sometime in May. The Labour Party there is leading in opinion polls, which would be really good news for the center left in that country. And this would be the first Labour government if they're able to win in Australia since 2013. So that's something we'll be keeping a close eye on and we'll definitely be discussing more once the election is set and as we get closer. Then up in Canada, we actually had a general election that occurred last fall that returned a minority liberal government led by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, which is the exact same government that had been in place before the election. So the 2021 election was really a status quo re-election of what had taken place in 2019. Now, minority governments are not uncommon in Canada, particularly because they have more than two parties that win a significant number of seats, but they also often don't last the full four years. The left-wing New Democratic Party and the minority governing liberals just this week announced what's called a confidence and supply agreement that's going to help sustain the government through the four full year term until 2025. Now, let me define for you what a confidence and supply arrangement is. That's not something we know about in American politics. It's not a coalition, which is where the the NDP would also be a part of the government, where they would have some of the ministries and they would really share power with the liberals. It's not that. A confidence and supply agreement is where an outside party, in this case, the NDP, agrees to support the minority liberal government on certain key votes, specifically on budget votes and on any no-confidence votes. 
In return for supporting these key votes that keeps the government running and functioning, the liberals agreed to move forward some key priorities of the new Democratic Party, specifically a dental care program for low-income Canadians and a national prescription drug program. So really some important expansions of health care in Canada is what the new Democratic Party ensured that would happen by entering into this agreement. Now, why do these two parties do this when it's not terribly common to have happened in Canada? Well, first of all, it allows the Liberals to govern for four years without fear of the opposition parties getting together and forcing an election on them when they don't want to have one. They obviously suffered through that. The minority government first started in 2019. They themselves called an early election in 2021 to try to get back a majority and failed. So this is the way that they found to bring some stability to their government and keep it going until 2025. And the NDP, obviously, they've gotten some really important progressive legislation that's really going to help a lot of Canadian citizens. But this also allows them to replenish their funds after two federal campaigns in three years. The NDP up in Canada historically has a lot less money than either the Liberal Party or the Conservative Party. And so running a federal election campaign takes a lot out of the party. And so having the opportunity for a full four years to replenish those funds and to be ready for this 2025 election really sets up the NDP a lot better than if another early election had been called. So that's the situation. Obviously, either party could withdraw from this. There's nothing legally binding about it. If something were to happen that forced one or the other party's hand, we could still see an early election. That's the nature of parliamentary politics. But in the optimistic sense, the goal is obviously for this confidence and supply arrangement to last until 2025 and bring some stability to the Canadian government. So Beard, I'm curious, why would two parties like this enter into a confidence and supply arrangement instead of the coalition arrangement that you were also discussing? I think there's a couple of reasons. One is tradition. The coalition government is not something that we've really ever seen in Canada, I believe potentially outside of wartime, but it's not something that any of the parties would go to as a first choice, as opposed to a number of European countries that have parliamentary politics, where it's very common to have coalition government. It's not common at all in Canada. And so there's a lot of resistance to that concept where the parties are a lot more clearly defined. The confidence supply arrangement is not something that's happened a lot at the federal level, but there's been a number of cases at the provincial level where parties have gone into these confidence and supply agreements. So it's a lot more seen as a more acceptable solution for those two parties. That's sort of why they've taken that arrangement instead of trying to go into the a sort of full coalition, which also involves a lot more complexities in terms of sharing all the priorities instead of very specific agreements having NDP actually run portions of the government. The Liberals have been running the government for a number of years now, and I think they're pretty happy to continue to do so. They don't really want to bring in other parties. So they really wanted to keep things as they were. And this just allows them to keep running the government and only have to make policy concessions instead of having to really change the way the government is set up. Well, we're going to migrate back south of the border from Canada to the United States. We will be talking with Jessica Post, president of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee, the official arm of the Democratic Party that helps Democrats win legislative races nationwide. We're going to take a short break, but stick with us.
Joining us today is Jessica Post, the president of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. The DLCC is the arm of the Democratic Party that focuses on winning state legislative races across the country. Thanks for being here, Jessica. I'm so happy to join you. Thanks so much, David Beard. So how did you end up in the world of state legislative races? I know, you know, particularly in D.C., federal races really dominate everyone's thinking. You might get a little talk of governor's races, but state legislative races really find themselves under the radar a lot of the time. Oh, for sure. And I think that's certainly something that we want to change. And, and that's why we've always been so appreciative of all the coverage from Daily Coast elections on uh, state legislative races. It's, it's always been appreciated. And I know even before state legislative races became more cool. Uh, I know that <laughs> the Daily Coast elections was on the forefront of, of covering them. So I appreciate that. Uh, so I was uh, in college. I went to college in rural Missouri at, at Truman State University. It's a public liberal arts college. We like to call it the Harvard of Northeast Missouri. And we went to one of the things that we would do, there was a targeted state legislative district and I was a college Democrat. So we'd go out and we would knock doors in to hold control of either or try to win control of the Missouri State Senate or hold control of the Missouri State House. In when I graduated from college in 02, Democrats controlled the Missouri State House still. And we unfortunately lost control of the Missouri State House in 2002. But I started managing a state legislative race right out of college. And so that sort of got me into it. But, you know, the first door that I knocked for a candidate was a state legislative race. And we used to go all around the state at our little college Democrats chapter and knock doors in state legislative special elections. So we were kind of a canvas team for the state party that would get called in and, and then we'd go around the state. And I think that was really helpful. I think look like a lot of folks did not start their careers knocking doors in rural Missouri. And so for me, I, I think back on that. I think back on the doors that I've knocked throughout my career. And I think that really informs how folks think through issues. But that's how I got started. And that's how I really understood the impact of state legislatures on policy. So how did you go from knocking doors in rural Missouri then to the DLCC? <laughs> well, it was a long, it was a long journey. It was a long winding journey. So I'll try to summarize it. But I, it you really know the impact of, of state legislatures when you're in a state that has flipped from blue to red. So, for example, when I was growing up in Missouri, there was act, there were there's access to a number of Planned Parenthoods that uh, provided abortion services. And when Republicans took control of the legislature in Missouri, we went down to just one clinic in St. Louis. And now everyone sort of knows what's happening with choice in Missouri, where they're even trying to outlaw women leaving the state to have abortions. So because I understood the impact of state legislatures and because I understood the impact uh, on funding for mental health and so many other things, I ended up, I, you know, I started managing a state legislative race right out of college through those college Democrat connections, also in rural Missouri a town so small that they called the Applebee's the Applebee's <laughs> the first time that I went in to take a, <laughs> the first time I went in to take a, um, a workout class, they told me that I needed to like rewind the video and just like put it back into the, <laughs> into the VCR. <laughs> I'm also aging myself, I think, through these anecdotes. So 
So I started working there. Then I worked at the Missouri House Caucus, um, looking at the whole battlefield, really the races in eastern Missouri. Missouri has 163 state house seats. And so I would I spent time in about 20 of them in eastern Missouri. So I sort of got to know the impacts of candidate door knocking. I would meet with one candidate at midnight on the bench in a St. Louis grocery store called Schnucks. She was a night manager at a Schnucks. And it, this really informs everything that I, I know state legislative candidates need. So I sat down with her. It's midnight and she's lived like a box with slips of paper and all sorts of business cards across the bench to me and asked if we could put together a fundraising database. And then when she, she would come home after working the night shift at, at Schnucks and sleep, and then someone needed to have a walk packet ready for her to go out and knock doors. So you think about that a lot at DLCC, a, a, a lot about that candidate, Pat Yeager, who served several terms in the Missouri House, when I think about what state legislative candidates need. And of course, there's a more modern version of all of that now. So I worked on campaigns all across the country after working at the Missouri House at all levels of the ballot. I did ballot initiatives. I did some advocacy campaigns. I did the um, Franken race in Minnesota. I was the field director for the coordinated campaign. And then I was recruited to come to DLCC as a junior staffer. I was the national field director and the political director. And we lost a lot of chambers in 2010. And I, I know that I knew that things really needed to change. I left, I went to Emily's List where I advised candidates running for federal office. I recruited women to run for office at all levels of the ballot. And eventually I realized as I was working with these candidates that I was recruiting women to run for Congress in districts that were unwinnable. And that made me realize I, I wanted to go back to my original passion in the States. The executive director of DLCC had left and um, some of the board started to recruit me to go back to DLCC. Originally, I was like, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and eventually I decided that I'd go back and, and help run the committee. So it's been, it's been all uh, rebuilding from there. And we've had some great election cycles. So let's talk specifically about the DLCC and what you guys do. You know, we might summarize it as, you know, as, as Beard did at the top of the show, as the organization that helps elect Democrats to state legislatures across the country. But what exactly does that mean on a practical day-to-day -day and also more strategic basis? You know, the folks who listen to this show are definitely interested in the nitty-gritty of sort of how politics comes together and where the rubber meets the road. So how does an organization like the DLCC construct itself to be able to make a difference on such a large playing field when you're talking about Obviously, 50 states, 7,000 some odd state legislators across the country. You're not working on every single race or every single state, of course. But how do you guys do what you do? When I came back from Emily's List, I realized we needed to scale the organization pretty tremendously. We were a $16 million organization, and there were only about 12 staff members. And the Republicans were running multi-million dollar races and tons of funds through their committee. And so I thought we have to do everything we can to build an infrastructure to meet this moment. And a lot of what I saw at Emily's List was um, robust digital fundraising programs, more in-depth candidate tracking, and providing a lot of funds to individual campaigns through their ability to sort of raise through their donor network. And to me, that was really important. The Republicans were outspending us tremendously. We were being outspent quite a bit in states. We also had only, I think, 31 Democratic majorities. And so we were running uphill to try to flip these state legislative chambers. 
often what happens is the pack and lobby money around a state capital that goes to the majority chamber. It's sort of a incumbency advantage, but for the le- entire legislative chamber. And so it takes a lot of individual funds and resources that are not involved in like the business of state government to help flip a legislative chamber from red to blue. And while our Democratic donors were giving significant funds at the, at the U.S. Senate, at the congressional level, they weren't as focused on unseating state legislative Republican incumbents and incumbent chambers. So we also did do a lot to build the awareness of state legislatures in the space. In 2017, we won a lot of special elections, and I think that was really exciting for the party. We unveiled our flip gift, um, which if you haven't seen it, it's on Twitter. It's just like a moving flipping <laughs> gift that shows the the seat flipping. And in the 2017 and 2018 cycles, we flipped hundreds of seats red to blue and eight state legislative chambers. So we, we really dug in. And I think doing that work, helping folks in the party at a really desperate moment under Trump, so like I kind of see the way back, that's that's how we help build. And so now we're up to, um, we'll be at maybe 70 plus staff at the end of the cycle and we'll raise hopefully more than $60 million. And so that allows us to provide a lot more money to state programs to do things like candidate recruitment, to build campaign infrastructure, to raise digital funds themselves to raise um, individual money themselves, to try to really get our level of the ballot funded appropriately to take out Republican majorities. And we need to do a lot. In the first quarter of this year, or I should say last year, the Republicans raised 33 million, not the first quarter. Going back, we raised 22 million last year. They raised 33 million last year. And that's, you know, that's like, they still have a significant financial advantage and we're doing everything we can to kind of overcome it. So let's say that I'm, I don't know, a prominent city councilor or somewhere, and there's a competitive state house or state senate race where I live, and you know the Democratic Party is interested in me running, and I'm like, maybe I'll give this a shot. How does the DLCC sort of interact with that person? How do they bring them along? What's sort of the step by step process from like the new candidate perspective? Yeah, I mean, first I should just say, look, like the way we 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 pick which states we engage in. We look at all of the data analytics. We look at historical data history in partnership with some of the Daily Coast Elections district level data that's been produced that some of your listeners may be familiar with. Um, Thank you for doing that. It's a service to everyone in the party. And so we first hone in on like which states could be flippable from red to blue or which states do we need to protect. And so let's say you're on the city council in let me use a Minnesota example if folks can follow it. So let's say you're on the city council in Hopkins, Minnesota, which is in a Western suburb of Minnesota. And we've decided that this is a district that we need to win sort of based on the data. We work with in-state partners who do candidate recruitment. So often it's the state house leader in partnership with us uh, reaching out to that candidate and then talking about the services that we can provide to that candidate and establishing expectations Um, Some of it's simply timeline, um, some of it's funding. And then eventually we elevate some of the individual candidates to our DLCC spotlight races. The spotlight races, is it's not a um, comprehensive target list because there will probably be about six to 700 races that are considered state legislative targets all across the country, even in our tier one and two chambers. But that's one way that we raise resources for those individual candidates. But it's everything that we do is with in-state partners, And that includes messaging. We don't sit in Washington, D.C. and say, like, this is the candidate that you need to recruit, the top Kansas City Council member. 
We instead work with um, the state house leader. So in this case, let's say we wanted that person to run for state house. We'd work with the Minnesota House Speaker, Melissa Hortman, uh, in the majority, and we'd go out and see if they wanted to run for this specific district, working with her and the staff on the ground. So we fund a lot of that state-based infrastructure. If you can think of like, there's a small, for folks that aren't as familiar, there's a small DCCC in every state that's responsible for winning the majority in each state legislature. And so in Minnesota, the House, it's called the House DFL Caucus, the House, which is the Democratic Farmer Labor Party, Democratic Caucus. And then there's the Senate DFL Caucus as well. So those two group of state legislative Democrats come together, pool their campaign funds, working with a legislative leader to create a shared strategy with staff and with us to count up to the seats that are needed to win a state legislative majority. So in Minnesota, there are 134 state legislative seats. They're in the majority right now. And so you need to win the majority of those seats. Um, So we'll do everything we can to count up to that majority number. And then we also, the other thing I'll just say, like we provide funding for individual races through our Spotlight Races site. We write some direct checks to candidates, but it's much more, it's much more in the strategy to win the majority. And so working to triage those funds across those races to win the state legislative majority, because that's that's when you have power and can do things. We also will look at things like um, keeping Democrats out of the super minority. We did that in Louisiana to try to support the governor of Louisiana and veto. We did that actually on our own. We wanted to make sure that. Um, and I think this is sort of going back and forth, but that Bell Edwards's veto of the Republican maps would be sustained. So we did that there. We went in and we tried to break other um, super mi- minorities. And then in a state like Wisconsin, we're, all, we're constantly trying to keep the Dems out, out of going to the super minority so they can prevent an override of Tony versus Vito's. So power by different definitions, but always oriented around power. Speaking of Democrats gaining power, why don't we dive into some of the specific states that are going to be on the ballot this year? We wanted to start with some offensive opportunities that have opened up thanks to huge changes in redistricting. In Michigan, there's the new Independent Redistricting Commission, which put in place much fairer maps than the previous GOP gerrymanders that had been used for decades. And in Pennsylvania, a, a similar phenomenon happened with the Redistricting Commission there finally having a fair-minded tiebreaker appointed by the state Supreme Court, which is in turn controlled by Democrats. And so the maps there also broke a long string of GOP gerrymanders. And of course, these are also major swing states that were very close in the last few presidential elections. And Republicans control both chambers in both of these states. So what do you see going on in Pennsylvania and Michigan in terms of the opportunities these redistricting reforms have unlocked? Well, let me start with Michigan first, because we are definitely thrilled with the Michigan State Senate maps. Uh, talking with the leader in Michigan, Leader Jamanonek, who's a friend and just a wonderful, wonderful dude. He represents Flint in the state legislature. He um, he told me the other day, and and the data supports this that in they could win a, they could win eighteen seats, so a near path the majority in the Michigan State Senate uh, in the twenty fourteen cycle. So it's a huge improvement. The Michigan State Senate maps haven't been drawn um, in a fair way in about forty years. 
So we're just thrilled to see the improvement in the Michigan State Senate map. So that's really huge. The Michigan State House maps still have a slight Republican bias, even though they came out of this nonpartisan commission process. So huge opportunities to change the face of Michigan. You know, Michigan's a state where um, they have a 1938 post or pre-Roe abortion ban on the books. And so if as Roe falls with this conservative U.S. Supreme Court, uh, we'll see these historic laws or trigger bans that have been put into place go into effect. And Michigan's a place where winning the state legislature could prevent that. Whitmer has been the governor. Governor Whitmer has been trying to get the law off the books, but she's been unable to do that. So that's one unique role of the legislature, in addition to certifying presidential elections, which um, the Republicans really tried to undermine. And folks may or may not have followed this, but the Republican speaker at the time was flown into the Trump Hotel and wined and dined to try to go with Trump's view of what happened in the election in Michigan. So you're certainly on the knife's edge there. So that's Michigan. And then Pennsylvania, um, huge improvements in the state house map. Certainly there are um, about 12 more seats that Hillary Clinton won. uh, And that's certainly one way that we kind of judge the data. So that's a great possibility for us to flip that chamber red to blue. The state Senate, there was just a major retirement that happened in a seat that we almost won by about 87 votes. So it's an open Republican seat. Only half of the state Senate in Pennsylvania is up. So as a result, we'll have a hard time flipping it. There's just not enough seats up to flip. We see Pennsylvania as a multi-cycle play. And in we know that we can flip a few seats in Pennsylvania this cycle. And then the hope is that going into 2024, we can flip enough seats to flip the chamber. So we see in states that have staggered terms, like in Pennsylvania, that's how we look at state senates. So beyond Michigan and Pennsylvania, are there other states where the DLCC is looking to play offense in 2022? And like you said, that could also be places where you're looking to break a supermajority or something like that, like you mentioned in Louisiana. Yeah, I, we've moved most states out of the super, super minority status. One state that we're watching for that is Ohio, where the Democrats are still in the super minority. And I know there's been back and forth over the state legislative maps, but that might create another opportunity. One big place that we're really interested in flipping is the Minnesota State Senate. The Minnesota State Senate is the last state legislative chamber I worked at. I was the deputy caucus director there in 2006, which seems like a long time ago now that I say that out loud. But there's a huge opportunity for us to flip that state legislature. If we're able to do that, that would give us a democratic trifecta in Minnesota, if we can, of course, hold on to the governor and the existing DFL-controlled state house. The Republican legislature has held up a ton of progress in Minnesota. Like, if you think about progress on racial justice issues after George Floyd or progress on climate, all of those things have been held up by the Republican-controlled Minnesota state Senate. The entire state Senate is on the ballot. So like Michigan and Minnesota, we need to do everything we can to win it in 2022 because the next bite at the apple is 2026 for both the Michigan and Minnesota state senates. You mentioned in Minnesota, Democrats control the House, Republicans control the Senate. That sort of split is incredibly unusual in this day and age. Does the fact that you're on offense in one chamber and on defense in the other chamber, does that affect your strategy in any way? Having a split legislature really doesn't change the way we look at things. Minnesota is interesting because their state house districts are nested within their state senate districts. There's an A side and a B side 
to districts in Minnesota. So there's a lot of very clearly overlapping targets. Um, the districts are sort of cut in half. It's not like the at-large districts that we see in Washington State and Arizona. So that creates a huge opportunity. The other thing that I would just add is in the congressional races that'll be really hot this year, if you think of Angie Craig in Minnesota too, or if you think of some of the other races in Minnesota, there's quite a lot of over overlap in some of those targeted races, including the Southern Minnesota seat with the passing of Jim Hagedorn. So there's huge opportunity now in the state Senate in Rochester, we hold some of those house seats. Minnesota doesn't have legislative term limits. And as a result, now having some of these new open seats gives us an ability potentially to pull some of the long-serving House members over into the state Senate. And we think that we have a great opportunity between the suburban nature of the districts and um, some of these other areas like Rochester, home of the Mayo Clinic. So now let's turn to some of the states where Democrats are going to be looking to hold on to the majorities. Mm -hmm. What are the DLCC's top priorities on that front? So the Colorado State Senate is certainly at the top of the list. The maps that came out of the Nonpartisan Redistricting Commission did a couple things. The maps are slightly worse for us in Colorado. In addition to that, we have the staggers, not the way that we would have wanted it. Half of the legislature is up this year. The other half will be up in 2024. And the seats that are Democrat favored are up in are up in 2024, where the seats that are sort of more of a swing seat seats have been allocated to be up in the midterm elections. It used to be the opposite. So this will create a tougher electoral environment in Colorado. We ultimately think we'll hold the Colorado Senate, but we're going to do everything we can to make sure of it. The other states that we'll watch closely are New Mexico. The district lines did improve in New Mexico, but it's definitely a place that uh, we lost in 2014. And so if turnout sort of craters again, it's a place that uh, could be more competitive. We also saw Hispanic males trend away from us specifically in New Mexico. Um, and I say Hispanic because that's the preferred term in the state. And then in Nevada, we'll watch both chambers. The Nevada State Senate's been on the knife's edge for a long time. We beat back a Republican recall successfully in, in the 2019 cycle when they tried to take out um, three of our state senators. But we will, while the maps have improved, the chamber numbers are still very close. And so those are two at the t or three at the top of the list. We'll also watch Maine. The district lines in the House, so we think are a little more competitive. The state Senate has always been a perennial target. And then, of course, we'll watch the Minnesota House like we just talked about. So the Minnesota House is really, it's sort of, it's a volatile chamber. It Because the district lines are fairly drawn, it has flipped back and forth many times. In states like Michigan, where Democrats win the popular vote, if you in the state house seats every year, the Republicans really designed those seats and gerrymandered those seats for them not to be not to be a subject to sort of trends and whims. So in cycles in cycles like this, like a midterm cycle, we will watch that really closely, the Minnesota House. So speaking of midterm cycles, one topic that has been a constant for us on this podcast is the difficulty that the party in power, by which we mean the really the party that controls the White House, typically has in midterm years. It's certainly something that's trickled down to state legislative races in difficult midterms in the past, such as 1994, and you talked about 2010 earlier. So how are you working with candidates and your partners in the states, the various caucuses, to face what looks like could be another tough environment? 
I think the first thing is to just talk about here are the challenges of this environment in the the only midterm election I think where the president's party has gained seats that's of sort of recent time is George W. Bush and the Republicans in 02 after 9-11. And so that's a sobering reminder, I think, to a lot of our legislative leaders that even if we do have improved maps, we need to do everything we can to shore up at-risk incumbents. Fortunately, we have a really good playbook from Virginia. The Folks that were able to win their seats in Virginia, like if you think of Delegate Dan Helmer, Delegate Wendy Gaditis, in both of those races, they the delegates like made an incredible commitment to constituent services. And in addition to that, they also worked really hard. They went out and they door knocked, which was an asset that we didn't have enough of in 2020. They also went out and integrated what they were doing with constituent services inside the state capitol with their campaigning strategies. And they messaged on their specific accomplishments. In the case of Wendy Gaditis, it was about her compelling healthcare story with the untimely, unfortunate death of her brother and what motivated her to deliver healthcare to more Virginia families. And Helmer talked about expanding school meals. So to about 25,000 additional Virginia children. So those are maybe seemingly, I guess, healthcare to that many Virginians is pretty big. But it wasn't necessarily running on the accomplishments of the incumbent caucus. It was more running on their specific individual accomplishments and the storytelling of that. Like, oh, that's the teacher that whose brother passed away who fought for health care. Oh, Dan Helmer, he's the veteran. And in all of these races, they could have fallen victim to running on other messages, but they really stayed true to their local messaging. And that's, I, we think the playbook going into 2022, we had a lot of success with local messaging in 18, certainly a better cycle, but we're working on that certainly again. So Jessica, before we go, we would love it if you would tell our listeners how they as individuals can get involved and support the DLCC's work and state legislative Democrats in general. We'd love it if folks would check out dlcc.org. We also have and will continue to have local volunteer opportunities for folks to get involved on our site in some of the key races nationally. Uh, as the cycle goes on, we'll have spotlight races, so races that will decide control of state legislatures across the country on our site as well. So check that out. And then you can also follow us on Instagram at DLCC, on Twitter, and uh, on Facebook. So you can engage with us in multiple ways and I'm also at Jessica Post on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Jessica Post, the president of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Jessica Post for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. As a reminder, you can reach us by email at thedownballot at dailycoast.com. Please send in those questions for next week's mailbag. You can also send those questions via Twitter, via at DKElection. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to The Down Ballot and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Kara Zalaya, and editor, Tim Einenkel. We'll be back next week with a new episode.